You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, where we offer courses, events, and more for intellectually curious adults age 50 and better. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu. Now, let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member, Susan Supak, as she sits down for a conversation with one of the people who makes our program so special. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Torget, a historian of 19th century America at the University of North Texas, a digital humanities lab director, a world record holder, which we'll get into later, and quite an accomplished author. His most recent book, Seeds of Empire, Cotton, Slavery, and the Transformation of the Texas Borderlands, 1800 to 1850, has been quite impressively received. It has won 12 major book prizes and has also gotten some pretty amazing reviews. And I just have to share a few of them because they are impressive. The American Historical Review describes the book as written in a clear, engaging style and supported by prodigious research in both Mexican and U.S. archives. Seeds of Empire offers a complete reconfiguration of this period of Texas history. It will undoubtedly serve as the standard work on the topic. Wow, that's something. Texas Monthly declares Seeds of Empire the most nuanced and authoritative rewriting of Texas's origin myth to date. And the Journal of American History states, Torget ultimately has crafted a work to which scholars of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands should aspire. So those are just a few of the reviews I read, and it's pretty high cotton, as they say. <laughs> Welcome, Dr. Torget. Thank you. I think my mom wrote most of the reviews, <laughs> but thank you. I appreciate that. Well, I have to say, I have read the book myself, and I know it is, for a fact, an excellent book. It's uh, very engrossing. It's an easy read, and I recommend it highly to anyone. It's thank you. really nicely done. I appreciate that. You've been busy, I know, with <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> a lot of different things. So I guess to start out, since uh, you, know, you are a uh, historian of 19th century America is to ask you why it's important for us to understand Texas history, or I suppose any history for that matter. Yeah, that's a good question. I was actually talking about that with, I was teaching the Texas history survey this semester, and we were just talking about that with my class. To answer why I think we should study Texas, Texas is an amazing place to understand North America and how it looks today. It's this crossroads of the Spanish Empire, Mexico, the United States, and a lot of international players we usually don't think of when we think about Texas, like Great Britain, which was the most important and powerful nation of the 19th century. Texas is kind of at the center of all of that. So when you study Texas, you're not just studying Texas. You're studying the evolution of North America. And if you want to understand the modern boundaries of the United States and Mexico, you want to understand the modern look of the continent, you really have to understand the story of Texas as an insight into into all those different pieces. I would say it's you know it's a way to understand this place, but how it affects all these other places around the world. But history, in a broader sort of sense, I think is uniquely suited to teach 
for my undergraduates, the critical thinking skills they'll need throughout their entire lives, you know, in terms of weighing evidence, making arguments and things like that. But I really feel that if you're going to be a culturally literate citizen in the United States today or anywhere in the world, you really have to understand history because people use history to justify things. You can say Lincoln said this right. or Jefferson said this, right. and it bolsters your argument. And people invoke the past as a way of making arguments about today. And that's fine. Um, everybody does it on both sides of the political spectrum. But what I tell my students is you have to understand that history to be able to weigh what people are saying and understand and make decisions for yourself about how people are using history and what you think of it. And so it's a study of kind of how we got to where we are. And understanding that, I think, is crucially important. Well, from the book that you wrote, I was very interested to learn about the interplay of people and the way that brought about building Texas together the way it is today. And I can see what you're saying about understanding. I mean, the people and kingdoms and powers and governments continue to have strong influence on each other today. So it was very interesting to see that that was the way that worked yeah, yeah. I mean, Texas, so the book's about kind of the transformation Texas goes through in the first half of the 19th century, when it starts off being claimed by the Spanish, but really controlled by the Comanches, to being an independent state under Mexico, to being an independent republic for nine whole years, as Texas likes to remind the rest of the country on a regular <laughs> basis, to ultimately joining the United States as the westernmost outpost of the United States. That all happens in 50 years. I mean, that's an enormous transformation. And it's not just the United States, Mexico, and Spain. It's also Great Britain. It's Indian nations. And they're all coming in this one crossroads region that's transforming, again, modern North America. Yeah, much um, more involved than I ever realized before. Well, the, more than I did when I started the book. I mean, I grew up in Texas, mm -hmm. and I, I took fourth and seventh grade Texas history. And, you know, the history I learned growing up was kind of one-dimensional. It was very, like, Mexico had this, and then the American. Came right. out, then they had it, and that was basically it. Yeah, that's what um, I learned. Yeah, there's, there's, it's a much more deep textured, and I think therefore much more interesting story um, mm -hmm. underneath all of that. Yeah, absolutely, very engrossing. So, can you tell us a little bit about writing the book? Yes, um, I had no idea what I was doing most <laughs> of the time. It was interesting. I started the book with an idea. So I grew up in Texas, and I took fourth and seventh grade, and then I went off to Virginia for graduate school, thinking I wanted to study slavery in the South. And I did, and I was working on researching these slaveholders who left Virginia during what's known as the Cotton Revolution, when cotton prices get real high. And they go to Mississippi, and they go to Alabama, and they set up, you know, Mississippi and Alabama as the Deep South. And some of these guys kept going into northern Mexico, and I was like, wait a second. I, I knew about Stephen F. Austin Why are they vaguely. doing that? Yeah, yeah, and they're doing it at the same time. Like, Mississippi and Alabama become states in 1817 and 1819, and Austin comes to Texas in 1821. I was like, are these the same people? They're going to Austin's colony because I'd never heard about that, the expansion of cotton and, and therefore slavery into Texas. And so I jumped into the book thinking, well, that's interesting. What, what happens when you take Mississippi and try to move it into Mexico? Right. Where you don't have the protections of the U.S. Constitution for slavery. In Mexico, you have to explain things to the Mexican government was the idea. But I was wholly unprepared for doing that because at least two-thirds of the research was in Mexico. And I didn't have any Spanish except my high school Spanish that was dicey at best. That's amazing. So you went into the Mexican archives. Yes. Um, Mexico City, I'm assuming? Mexico City was my first stop. I, I jumped on a plane. I said, well, I better go see what they've got. So knowing nothing, I'm 
I jumped on a plane, went to Mexico City, where I went to the National Archives down there, which appropriately is housed in a former prison. Oh, dear. (laughs) (laughs) Which I think is the best metaphor for historical research. You imprison yourself (laughs) with the archives. But I went down there and mucked around for a month, and your Spanish can improve very quickly. And I found some amazing things in the archive. That was what's so exciting about the project, is that what was in the archives in Mexico are things that you just didn't find in the United States. They had these, for example, I start, I open the book with a vignette of these slaves who run away from Louisiana and they're captured by Mexican authorities. And what's really interesting about that is that the Mexican authorities interviewed them about why did you run away? What's going on? The United States would have never, no authority in the United States would have ever done that because the testimony of enslaved people was just not worth anything. But here I was in Mexico City, in the National Archives in Mexico City, reading their their firsthand accounts of, well, I ran away because this guy used to beat me and he was terrible to me. And it was this insight into a deeper, broader, more textured story than than we've had access to because I had access now to sources that we hadn't had before. Are you planning on writing another book anytime soon? Yes. Yes. I, I love research and writing as much as I love teaching. I'm working on a book about the rise and the destruction of 19th century Galveston. Oh, wow. And that sounds incredibly interesting. It, yeah, it's, it, it grew out of Seeds of Empire. The, the short story is Galveston, when, I, when I'm writing Seeds of Empire, Galveston was an island that everybody knew would be a great port, right? But it was never allowed to be turned into a port by the Mexican government because it was too close to the United States, too close to New Orleans. So Stephen F. Austin and all his friends said, we'd love to put a port there. And Mexico says no. But as soon as the Texas Revolution is over in 1836, literally the last gunshot at San Jacinto happens, everybody in Texas realizes that Galveston is going to be the next big thing. So Sam Houston and several of his friends get together and they create what's called the Galveston City Company. And they give themselves exclusive title to the island. It's kind of like a third world oligarchy style, like, it's ours! (laughs) And the Galveston City Company starts building Galveston from nothing in 1836. There's just three trees on the island and nothing else. So by the 1850s, Galveston is rivaling New Orleans, and it's shipping out most Incredible. of the cotton in the United States. Yeah. And then by the 1870s, almost all U.S. cotton goes through Galveston, and it's rivaling New York City. New York City. Wow. By the 1890s. Wow. And then it's destroyed in 1900 by the worst hurricane that's mm. ever hit uh, the American coast. And it's, it, it's destroyed, and no one remembers it to this day as a result of that. And what I'm really excited about is that We didn't know much of that story because the Galveston City Company that helped do all of that, their records were lost in the hurricane, we thought. But about a year ago, I was down in Galveston, and we discovered a safe that has been sitting in a business building, yes, down in Galveston for a hundred-something years, and it has all the original records of the Galveston City Company. That's amazing. It it is. It's like everything, it's like a treasure hunt kind of like thing. Are you still jumping up and down? Yeah, I've been jumping for about a year. It was, well, it's 8,000 pages of manuscripts, and it details, it's like the birth records of the most important city, not just in Texas, but the American Southwest, because Galveston... It's the point of entry for so many people. It's the Ellis Island of the Southwest. That's right. All this finance and people are coming through. Denver becomes what Denver is Mm -hmm. because of Galveston. No kidding. And that story hasn't been told because we haven't had the records, but we we just found them. And so that's the next book. I can't wait to read it. (laughs) I can't either. (laughs) Don't take too long to write it. I want to read it. Okay, now you became a part of history yourself by securing a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records, no less, by teaching 
teaching the world's longest history class. Now, I have to say a joke you've probably heard time and time again. I think I went to a class when I was in college that was longer. <laughs> you've <laughs> probably heard that, that way, before. Right? Yeah. No, I am just kidding. This is amazing. It was, well, I'll let you talk about it. I know, I know it was 26 yeah, no, hours no, no, long, sure, which is just sure. like, I have to tell you, I'm going to let you talk about yeah. it in a second. What boggles my mind is how you stayed awake and talked that whole time. But anyway, it, it if you, my mind too, you actually. want to um, tell the listeners a bit about sure. it. Sure. So the idea came from my kids. And so when I was a kid, we had the, the Guinness Book, which back then was just one big book, and you yeah. could flip through all the records. Yeah. And me and my friends tried a million times to set something and never succeeded. <laughs> but my kids are now 8 and 10, and so one Saturday morning, we got on my laptop, and you can look up online the Guinness website, and you can mm -hmm. look up any record there. And so we were looking up stuff they could set, and then they came up with the idea, what if Daddy set a record? And so they, they came up with the idea, what if you set a record for the world's longest history lesson? And I said... Okay, that sounds kind of cool. Sounds interesting. Yeah, and so I, I took the idea to the library at UNT, which has the portal of Texas history. And they're trying to raise money for their endowment for the portal. And mm -hmm. so we kind of got together and said, all right, let's 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 try to do this. You know, we thought at first, like, this will be an easy thing to put together, but it actually took a whole year. It must. Oh, yeah, I can't imagine talking that long. Well, it's, it was a talking long time, and I had to prepare myself, but it was the logistics involved. It was actually a class, so it's me, and we had to have at least 10 students the entire time. And we had to feed them, and we had to work bathroom breaks. Legit we... UNT students had oh, yeah, to be. Yeah, well, okay. yeah, yeah. Well, it could be anybody, but we, okay. we, we used the UNT students, okay. exactly. Guinness had a really thick rule book where we had to, like, video me and then video the students and have it synced to an atomic clock. And then we had to have these independent witnesses. There are people completely unaffiliated with us. And so it, it just took a lot of planning to put it together. And then I spent a long time trying to get myself physically ready for all of this. I, I can't imagine. I, what did you do? <laughs> well, I, I'm a runner. Okay. So I spent that a lot helps. of time, yeah, kind of making sure I was keeping up my yeah. physical stamina. What was really fortunate for me is that my wife, who's an amazing person, she mm -hmm. also happens to be a speech pathologist. And so ah, she's my personal voice, voice coach. Handy. It, it was, because I was really scared I would just fry my vocal cords after eight hours. Which you could. Easily. But she helped me work on my, my getting my vocal cords ready and preparing me. We spent a lot of time working on my hydration, because your vocal mm -hmm. cords are really the last thing to hydrate, and the first thing to dehydrate. So... You know, we did a lot of that, and then I just practiced a ton because we were teaching my entire Texas history class from the beginning, like Pangea, okay. up until you know as far as we could go. And so we put together, I did uh, all my lecture notes, which we had 500 pages of those and 1,600 uh, PowerPoint slides stitched together. And I kept going through it and kind of rehearsing it because the first couple hours I'd be on point, but I figured at three in the morning I'd be pretty loopy. So I wanted to like have have enough muscle memory in what I was talking exactly. about that I could push through. Good for you. Yeah, and that's incredible. It was something. It was fun. It was actually less physically exhausting than I expected it to be. I, I ended up pacing the stage the entire time and talking the whole time. I thought I'd lean on chairs yeah. and sit down a lot more than I did, but I think a lot of adrenaline was going for. And, and it hours. wasn't just the people there in the room with you. You had people watching from different countries, yeah. I understand. Well, the university put out one press release, and okay. it got picked up by pretty much every media outlet in North Texas. And I think during the record attempt itself, it got picked up by television and radio and newspapers and reached, I think, 26 million people during the attempt Holy itself. Holy cow! I know, it's amazing. <laughs> but it also was being live-streamed online, and uh -huh. so people tuned in from all over the world. And so we heard from people all over the United States, but 
you know, we heard from, for example, uh, there's a bar in a town of Dingle, Ireland that apparently had it on and turned it into a a drinking (laughs) game. Every time I said the word populist, they took a drink. And so so we we had, we had engagement from all over basically. So did they get pretty drunk? I don't, I didn't get reports (laughs) on how it went, but they, they reported that this was ongoing. But you know, I also heard from like retirement communities that had it up in like their common room. People who were driving and can listen to it on their phones. It was really amazing the reach it had. And people were just excited to be able to be part of a moment of, of making history by being able to tune in and listen and then engaging the history itself. Yeah, that's that's such a great thing that you did. Your students must love you. Well, <laughs> just the idea that you would do something like that. Yeah, it was funny. They, they, it's been a wonderful response from the whole UNT community. It really yeah, has. And it, it was I think that was one of the things I took the most joy out of is it became this kind of moment that lots of people got to engage in as a part Absolutely. of UNT pride. So. From ever since then, it's only been a couple months, but I have people come up to me regularly and want to tell me where they were when it was going on, because <laughs> because they want to share that because they were they yeah. were kind of part of being you know able to engage at all, and right. I, I love that because it's this wonderful kind of feedback loop about this thing we did that had this much broader effect. And your kids must be so proud. They're very, Dad they're did very it. Proud. Well, they're proud Yay. of themselves actually. Yeah. They, 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 we came up with this that idea. idea. Yeah, exactly. And they got to they got to help plan, and they were part of the team, and they introduced me they, they were really thrilled by it now you are also the director of the digital history lab mm-hmm. what is that that's a great question so one of the things that i do i write traditional books and i teach my classes in traditional ways one of the things that we're doing in our department is trying to take advantage of the digital revolution in terms of new ways to do history our library is, has one of the best digitization labs in the world, and wow. so there, and no one. I had no idea. Yeah, it's one of the better better kept secrets um, about UNT. <laughs> well, but, let's hope we ended that yeah, right now. <laughs> exactly. They're digitizing in huge numbers of historical sources, and that's what's really changed for historians since I started a long time ago. Is that it used to be that the bottleneck for doing work in history was getting access to sources. So going to the most archives was the way to do the best job, right? Whoever could see the most material was going to write the most accurate history. What's changed is that now that we have mass digitization, the question is now not what, what do you do with too little information. It's now what do you do with too much? So our library, just our library, for example, has digitized over 7 million pages of historical newspapers for Texas. That's incredible. It is. And it's an amazing bonanza. And who right? has access to that? Anyone. Anyone who goes no. to Yeah, that's that's the portal of Texas history that's that we're amazing. raising money for. Yeah, it's available to anyone online, anyone from the 1820s to the present. You have 7 million pages of newspapers. So you want to know what people said about the Alamo when it fell in 1836? You can read it for yourself. You want to see what they said about the Depression in 1936? You can go read that for yourself, too. It's really empowering. But for historians, it comes with a challenge. It's how do you go through all of right. that, right? You can't read all of it. So what we're doing in my lab is we're trying to build new techniques and adapt technologies that give historians uh, the ability to find meaningful patterns in those large collections. Mm-hmm. So we do a lot of data visualization, you know, big data. How do you visualize election returns from the 1840s to the present where there's been 1.3 billion votes cast? How do you see all of that in a way that you can really analyze it? How do you go through hundreds of millions of words in newspapers so that you find the meaningful patterns about how people are talking about Abraham Lincoln during the election of 1860 or 
what World War II meant for Texas and the Southwest or the United States in general. We adapt a lot of things from computer science, a lot of techniques and technologies there, and try to build new methods for, for not just writing history, but for also disseminating history so people can access it online. That is so exciting. It's fun. That's just really amazing. And especially to think somebody like me who doesn't, isn't connected with some university mm -hmm. or historical mm -hmm. society or whatever, can just go in and find out things for myself, too, do my own research. That's what I love about it is that it, it breaks down some of those artificial walls between the university and the public, yeah. you know, because that anybody can be engaged with this and anybody can see it. And, and it usually gets people really excited when they get a chance to engage it. It's got to be very cutting edge. I can imagine developing... The, what you have to develop, whatever software, whatever programs, but also in getting the word out. Yeah. Letting oh, yeah. people know. Absolutely. Here it is. Well, I do a lot of public speaking for that reason, trying to get people to, to be bet. aware of the amazing things that we're doing. That's awesome. So what drew you to become involved with Ollie? I love Ollie. I love I love being able to go out and engage people about the histories that I work on. And Ollie's wonderful because it's such a community of people who are interested in all kinds of things, who are interested in learning for its own sake, aren't concerned about a grade and aren't concerned about those things, but just have a love for knowledge and, and engagement. And when I go speak at Ollie events and I get to teach some classes... I mean, I get some of the best questions I ever get because these are people who, you know, have had their own careers and experiences and are bringing all that knowledge to the, these big questions that we're talking about, whether it's about the U.S.-Mexico War in the 19th century or World War II in the 20th century. So it's just a lot of fun. I love getting out and being able to talk to lots of groups. I do a lot of speaking outside of UNT, but Ollie's really one of my, it's a little treat for myself every semester when I get to do one of those. That's great. Well, I'm very fortunate to have you and... I appreciate so much you coming in and talking with us. Uh, you have so many interesting things going on, and I am really looking forward to reading about Galveston. <laughs> so uh, get to work. No, I know yeah, you no. are. <laughs> no, I am. I'm excited about I'm really it. looking forward to that. So thank you very much. Thank you, Susan. Appreciate it so much. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. Andrew Torgan, history professor, author, world record holder, and last but not least, an Ollie faculty member. Thanks so much for listening.